Kongs are Kongs. Welcome to Sanctimonious, a Keyforge podcast where two zealous Keyforge players discuss various topics regarding combat within the Crucible. Stand at attention and salute your hosts, Sir Jake and Sir Dan. Welcome back to another episode of Sanctimonious. This is Jake, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dan Johnson. Hey, 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 Jake. My wrists are all rested. I went back to my normal plan of not playing much inner life magic, and I feel so refreshed. Magic? Magic? Did I say magic? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Wow. Rough start. This just goes to prove what mind state I am in after this week of work has been fun. Fun times. Well, before we get too far down that rabbit hole, let's introduce our other guest we have here with us. Uh, it's a really special guest. One of the, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say best players that I'm personally aware of. It's uh, Eric Taylor, a.k.a. Justice Blinded. A.k.a. Mr. D- Mr. Day 2 of everything. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I don't know. I don't know about. I don't know about that. But 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 I'll accept the compliments. I appreciate. it. Well, here, just a second. How many events have you not day twoed that you've attended? That's going to be an easier question to answer than the other way around. Four. Yeah. Four. <laughs> you yeah. knew that answer. You knew that answer really quick. You know, they all hurt a little, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I yeah. do. How many How many events have you attended? Just for those that aren't aware. It depends on how far out. So I've attended ten vaults. And I attended the Grand Championships at Nova. And then I also attended a Prime recently. But I mean, we're not like, I've been to LGSs too, you know. Like Yeah, yeah, yeah. A well-seasoned player, a well-traveled player. I had the pleasure of running into him in Vault Tour Seattle, where we played some side events the day before. And then he steered me correctly on how to actually pilot my deck that I was failing with miserably on the day of the Vault Tour. Because I was in no danger of challenging him. But Seattle was fun, man. That's where that's where the gang got formed, if you will. That's great. And I, I had the opportunity to meet Eric at Origins originally. And then we also got to chat a little bit at uh, the Collinsville VT. So I, I know we're both really excited to have you on. And a lot of people in the Discord are very excited to hear your perspective on this game as well. So thanks, well, thanks. for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thank you. It's an honor to be on. I appreciate it. Let's jump right in to... The first segment, so we're going to try out something a little bit different than the inspiration uh, so we can get right into the main topics more quickly. So this is going to be a brand new segment called Shorty's Brew. Shorty's Brew. The intent here is that it's going to be a short question that you can ask your friends in one of the Crucible's many pubs. So this week's short question is, what has been your favorite Worlds Collide card so far and why? Eric, why don't you take the first stab at this one? So, favorite in terms of, like, thing I want to play with the most, although I don't know because it's a rare, I don't know how much it's going to hit, but Quitzelstone seems very interesting <laughs> to me. It's like a better version of Hearts um, in that you can probably more likely to find a decent Quitzelstone deck than you are a decent Heart deck, in my opinion. But it's it's it totally warps the entire game state. It is fun. You'll appreciate this, Eric. I have a Quixelstone Order 24 Scowly Caper deck. Oof. That's unkind. <laughs> so, like, so the one downside to that is that Order 24 would allow them to blow up all your Shadows creatures. Yes. Yes. Now, you have to be, you have to be cognizant of when you're playing Scowly Caper. But after Order 24 is gone and the board is small, like them having Scowly Caper as one of their creatures on their side is pretty fun. 
that is no, that's definitely hilarious. All right. Uh, well, I'll jump in next. So the card I've been enjoying the most so far is Lord Invidious, and that's the Dis Leader card that has it's a five power elusive creature, and it has the ability. Uh, if it's in the center of your battle line, you can reap to gain control of an opponent's flank creature, and it's considered house dis. And part of the reason I've been enjoying this is because it is just such an absolutely unfair first turn play on the play. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it he, just he, sits there, and it just invalidates so many like opening lines for whatever your opponent's going to do. There just aren't good answers to it. It's honestly hilarious. Yeah, Jake pulled that on me the other day on TCO, and I luckily had a turn one Hysteria, but that is not the turn I want to be playing Hysteria no, in the no. deck I had it in. I was hoping to archive it, because I think I had an Edai in deck that I could archive it to save it for later, but I mean, pretty much any creature I put down, I didn't want him to have, so I had to Hysteria it back to his hand and play a couple of Disties that could at least get rid of it the next turn if he replayed it. It was yeah. silly. It's definitely, it's not always a five power elusive witch, but it certainly feels that way when it's your first turn play on the play. It it converts, like, it's like a strictly better, um, uh, what's the card in Logos from Coda? Oh, Heartland Mindlock. Mindlock. It's a strictly better Mindlock because it, because it converts them to discs, right? It converts the, (laughs) it converts the creature to a house that you have, which is kind of insane. And it stays even after he dies, right? Oh yeah. 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 It persists. It's just like, I own you now. Come over here. (laughs) There you uh, go. All right, Dan, what my do you turn? got for us? All yes. right, it's going to come as no surprise, but Ronald Risk Clocks is my favorite. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, that guy's still sweet. He's still right up there. Um, no, but the actual Worlds Collide card I've been having the most fun with is Infernus. I love this card. So it's a disc creature for power. When it comes into play, you can purge two cards from either your archive, or not archive, excuse me, discard, or your opponent's discard. And then any amber pips associated with those cards cause your opponent to lose that much amber. Um, so it's, God, it's just so good. Like you're literally just kind of thin. Like you can either thin your own deck. So the deck I've been playing it in a lot. Um, I am happy to use this in my own deck before I'm about to reshuffle to get rid of certain cards that just aren't going to, that I just don't want to draw again. Like there's definitely cards in your deck, but especially in your opponent's deck when you can get stu- rid of stuff like stealth mode, Tribute, Six Semper, Tyrannosaur. Um, you get rid of those cards, so the next time they go through the deck, they don't have those anymore. You get rid of their Axiom. You get rid- you just you can you look at their list before the game, and then once those cards hit the discard, you're just like, all right, that card's not going to hurt me again. Um, and you're also going to lose one if it has the Amber Bit Pip on it. I did some Coda testing with that deck against uh, some Coda Rush. Oh my goodness, eating dust pixies is so delicious. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so yeah, Infernus just does so much work. And being that it's a creature, you can hysteria it, you can regrowth it, you can exhume it, um, you can code monkey it. There's just so many ways to just hit that play effect over and over again. If you have a science officer Morpheus, you can hit that ability twice, purge four. I mean, there's just oh, so much fun. Having a ton of fun with Infernus. The rare, the rare outstanding amber control value in this. Yeah, and at common, but I mean it's at common. Yes. What's weird though is it's common, but it's not that common. I've noticed I had like eight deck, eight disc decks in my box, and I don't think I think maybe one or two of them actually had Infernus in it. It's interesting. So I, I'd be curious to know if they've actually done something like that, or obviously it's a small sample size. But if they, 
my guess is they didn't sub-alter within a common set the odds that you would get a specific common, but within, I don't know, I would, I would guess, I don't know what kind of stats we have, but I'm guessing within maybe a month or so we should have enough decks where we can start drawing, registered, that we can start drawing statistical conclusions. We would probably do it now, but I, I just don't know the numbers offhand. Infernus, that common, uncommon, common. <laughs> the common that's not so common. This has been Shorty's Brew. One of the reasons I was so excited to have you on, Eric, is because you have really uh, taken upon yourself to provide excellent commentary at uh, vault tours on streams that uh, I've had the pleasure to watch. And I think that uh, this show might be a good platform to sort of talk about the subject of commentary, you know, what commentators should be seeking to do, how it can be improved, uh, and that type of thing. So I think that's where we want to go with this conversation. Does that sound good to everyone? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the comment. You're very welcome. So let's start off just really basic. Um, when you're sitting behind that mic, what do you think the goal should be for a commentator? Like, what are what are you trying to accomplish? So, what when I when I go into a commentating situation in something like Keyforge, I come at it with kind of a specific background. So, I, I have a background a little bit. It's never like a career of mine, but I have a little bit of a background in broadcast journalism. So, when I went to when I went to college, I was in a, an honors program that focused on media, and I had I did uh, color color commentary on the radio for our basketball team. Um, and I did some you know, TV commentary and I've done, done various things here and there for commentary. So I kind of try to bring principles I've learned in those different, obviously non, they're not even card games. They're, they're mostly sporting events, but I try to bring principles I've learned in those sporting events to, to bear on the Keyforge commentary. So my goals generally, are to first make sure everyone understands what's mechanically happening at the table. Um, especially if they, we have, you know, obviously you guys have been to vaults. There, there are different, and you've seen, you've seen video from different vaults. There's some vaults where we're in, uh, we're in a room where it's not very conducive to great lighting, or you can't quite see the cards. So there's, depending upon the venue, there's a lot of mechanical, make sure everyone knows what this person is actually doing at the moment. But I think above and beyond that, good Keyforge commentary should try to strive to provide more of a strategic insight, like kind of a long picture thing. So yes, this person is reaping with shadows right now rather than calling logos and playing cards. Why might they be doing that, right? If it's a sealed event, um, you know, maybe they don't know anything about the deck, but here are the commons that exist that they could be thinking about. If it's an Archon event, well, they've seen the deck list. They're playing around this particular card. Is that a good idea? Is that not a good idea? Or have they forgotten about this card, apparently? And so... I try to provide people with um, strategic insight for where I'm at. I'm never 100% like, you know, no one's 100% perfect. It's easier for me to get those lines when I'm in an eagle's eye view and not having to be on the table. Um, but I, that's what I try to do. I try to tell people what I'd be thinking at the moment and make, what I think they should. Thanks. That's really insightful. And one thing I've really appreciated about your commentary is it seems like you're doing something to... To add to, let me see, how do I want to phrase this? Like you're doing some storytelling too. You know, it's, it is about the play and what's literally happening, but you'll also insert these moments where you're like, 
well, let's see if that'll come back to bite them. Like, could that be the pivotal moment in this game? Like, we'll have to stay tuned to find out. So that's really like, you know, that's, uh, I guess, like an order above the actual gameplay and and just the literal cards. And I think that's really provides a lot of value. Well, thanks. And I mean, it's kind of funny. So part of that is due to like, it's almost like a that that sort of stuff sometimes is a mental reminder for me because I have a real bad memory in terms of remembering like discrete events that have happened. If I can take notes, it's helpful, obviously. Um, But if, but I have a pretty bad memory. So sometimes that's reminding me, but also sometimes I like to, I, I like to mentally bookmark things right out loud and saying like, these are, this is an event that seems to me to really matter. And it's entirely possible I'll be incorrect, but I think this is a, this is an inflection point of the match. And certainly if you're watching an event and you haven't had a lot of Keyforge experience or you haven't had a lot of experience with this set or anything, um, you might not know that like the turn where they did this one thing instead of this other one thing like could very likely end up as an inflection point in the match, could turn the tide either way, if you will. But, you know, but identifying it at the moment and then coming back later... Um, I, I feel like that could add value. It adds value for me when I watch things. So I imagine it adds value for other people. I'm not necessarily just trying to add drama, right? I'm not just, I'm not, I'm, I'm not one, one of those people that's like artificially increasing the drama level just for the sake of drama. Like usually when I'm saying that it's because there's a thing that's occurring. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I, I think that's like an interesting point to make too, because to do quality commentary, you kind of have to be passionate about that game and and what's happening. So that like when something really exciting does happen, like for example, maybe somebody hits five shadows cards off a rigged lottery just in a key moment right? of game. Yeah. Just hypothetically, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you're like, holy cow, like I can't believe that just happened. It's you know, it's genuine. Yeah. Um so I don't know. Dan, do you have any thoughts on this? No. Oh, (laughs) so I mean, so as somebody that's frequently done it and there's been some other people that have stepped up. So Archon's Corner has streamed a lot of these. Uh, Andrew with one star. I never get this right. Andrew, you all (laughs) know who I'm talking about. Five star games. I think One star piece, five star games. Okay, nice. Thank you. Yeah. See, I mess it up every time. Um, He's streamed a few of things, a few of the vaults, as well as just some local events. Um. I'm trying to think who else out there. B- Bouncing Death Quark has done a few. So mm-hmm. has Tabletop C- Royale done a uh, CT. So they they had they basically ran stream um, at um, uh, what's not the not uh, Richmond. They ran the Richmond stream, but they were both in day two. So like I kind of basically they just turned to me and they're like, "Here, you sit on the table, and then Justin gets knocked down round one, and then Justin and I did like." Did stuff for the rest of the time. That was such a highlight. I thought, uh, you know, Justin also did a fantastic job. That was just some, I think, some of the best commentary I've seen. Maybe if people haven't watched that, that'd be a good place to like go to as an example. Yeah, I've definitely, I've definitely had some great experiences. I mean, so since you have had so much experience commentating, what are some things that you could pass on? What if somebody else is wanting to stream some event, whether it be a local game store event or just you know a VT where they show up? And they've got the equipment. What are what are some tips and tricks for getting started sure. out? Sure. So, can, so before you jump in, I want to say I think also this could be it's not just people who are going to be casting vault tours, but I think it could also be relevant potentially to people who are interested in just streaming the game on Twitch or something like that. I think you'd want to do a lot of the same things, even talking about your own play. So just putting that out there that it maybe has a little bit more 
uh, appeal than just in that kind of narrow area. Sure. So are you are you asking like logistical questions? Or are you asking like just general like what what should they be talking about? What should they focus on? Okay. Kind of. Because I was just the technical aspect of that I am admittedly not the expert in. Yeah. In terms no. of, yeah, yeah. But in terms, okay. So in terms of logistics, I think that things that people should focus on are big picture things. If you're able to get deck list of the of the decks before the event and take a moment before the round and take a moment and look at them. Um, and kind of think, what do you think the key cards are going to be in this matchup? Maybe talk a little bit about that beforehand if you have a moment, and then see if that plays out. And if that plays out on screen um, in a different way than than you were expecting, talk about why that was. Talk about things you've learned. Don't be afraid to say, well, I thought this was going to happen. Turns out this other thing happens because the audience is learning along with you, right? So it's not it's not a thing where you need to be correct. I think it's I think it's much more important for you to be. Um, in terms of prediction-y type things, it's much more important for you to um, be uh, to verbalize what you're thinking, to be uh, to have a reason behind what you're thinking, and to tell the audience in a succinct manner as possible, and then see if that comes out to play. Then, then always being 100% correct. Um, I think that that's that's a critical thing. I think it's also important for um, when you're actually doing the game to not get caught up in the um, you know, in, in the mechanical, if, if something obviously mechanical is happening, like if someone is reaping twice, you, you don't need to necessarily say, like, he reaps with this creature, and then he reaps with that creature, right? It's a, it doesn't need to be, it's not a radio broadcast, right? It's it's a broadcast with video. So if, if you kind of have to make a judgment call as to what, what you think your audience is going to be able to see and not see, and just kind of talk about the strategic analysis um, as much as you can, because that's really what the commentary in my mind adds. It adds a layer of, um, these are other things that you might not be thinking about that I'm thinking about and we'll kind of see where this goes. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, and I think kind of what you're hinting at there is there, there's a, also an educational component, um, to where, you know, somebody's maybe learning about the game and, and learning about these interactions and, you know, also that communal learning experience. I think that's really good stuff. Um, I want to turn to kind of a more sticky subject potentially, which is how do you handle it when you're commentating a game and you perceive that the player is making a mistake? So that's tough. That That's a tough situation, right? Because you have to strike a balance between providing honest commentary that's helpful to the audience and not dumping on someone who made a mistake, right? And I've done enough of these... Um, uh, high-level events in commentary that that I have come across different situations, and I've tried to get better at this. So I, I tend to err on the side of being honest and communicating to the audience what you think happened. Um, obviously, there's a way to do that in a way that's not uh, disparaging to someone because they never try to do that. Like, and speaking from personal experience, having been on, you know, cast on stream as a player many different times. Like, I know it's an incredibly stressful experience, and I always try to put that in as, you know, as other things that are happening. Usually these streams are, like, day two of an event that I'm on because I'm playing day one. So they're day two of an event. It's been a long day one. They got up at, you know, whatever in the morning on day two. Um, and, and they're you know, maybe it's the third round on day two, day two and all that sort of stuff. The other thing that kind of plays into it personally for me is that I'm a pretty passionate guy. I get, I'm excitable at certain times. So there there's a this question makes me think of a couple different things, right? So there's, 
there was an incident in um, when I was overcasting uh, CKM's footage of Vault Tour. Um, I think it was Germany, the one that where Duncoro won his second Vault Tour. I think that was Germany, um, although I could be remembering it correctly. It was one of the more recent, maybe the That's... more recent European one. That sounds right. Germany sounds right to me, but I think that's right. So he had so his opponent in the final round was also on stream in semifinal. So Dunk's opponent and I forget it, I forget his name seemed like a pretty good player. Um, was on stream in semifinals, and he he had a deck that was a combo deck that involved I think it was generosity double key abduction, and in semifinals with about a third of his deck left where he needs the key abduction based on the board state in all likelihood to win. He has Wild Wormhole in deck, and he's playing Wild Wormhole, knowing that he could hit key abduction, and if he hits key, or you should know, that he could hit key abduction, and if he hits key abduction, he probably insta-loses. So I'm doing commentary with Grant, and I'm saying in semifinals, like, he pulls the Wild Wormhole out, he puts it on the table, I'm like, surely he's not playing that, because he runs some non-zero risk that he immediately loses. And... And, and, like, that would be real bad, obviously. And and so I'm <laughs> not like, what we right, want. right, he should not do that in that situation. And so he did it. He got away with it in semifinals, meaning he didn't hit, he didn't hit key abduction. He combos off and he wins. Now he's in finals. I forget which game it is against Dunk. And he pulls out Wormhole again in an almost identical situation where he might, where it was even more clear that he absolutely had to generosity into double key abduction in order to win. He was, like, down two keys, I think, if I remember correctly. And so he pulls out Wormhole and he plays it again. I'm like, and, and of course I'm, I'm on stream going like, you, as, as if he could hear me, right? Obviously he can't hear me. And he couldn't, and, he, and he's not watched my commentary of some of my finals. But I'm screaming at him over the screen. I'm like, don't do that. Like, that, that's, please don't do that. Like, I want, you know, like, because I, Dunk is my teammate. Obviously I'd like to see a win. But when I'm on commentary, I'm rooting for a good match, right? I'm not rooting for a particular person on commentary. Um, but I'm like, please don't play that game. And, and he Wormholes into Key Abduction, essentially ending, ending the tournament. And like I, you know, I get really excited because like this is a major thing that just that just happened in the final round. So I think I started like like saying something like, "Oh, you got punished there" or something. And I thought about it later, and like, and I don't know if that's like. I mean, I, I'm caught up in the moment, right? I'm like, it's it's a it's a hard balance to strike because you do not want to like you're not celebrating the misplay, but it's a major thing that happens. Like, if you're in, you know, Game 7 of an NBA Finals and there's 10 seconds left and someone went to take a shot and instead of taking a shot, they, like, they went to pass the ball and they threw it directly to the other team and, like, they stole it and that's the end of the game. Like, your commentators on the on the, on the, on the broadcast are going to get super excited that that happened, but it's not because they're, like, trying to dump on that guy, right? So it's a very, it's a very narrow balance you have to strike and I, and I try to always remind people that these are people in a, in a very stressful situation. Some of them for the first time they've been there for two whole days. They're doing all this stuff, but by the same token, I think it's, I think it's inauthentic if you broadcast in a way that doesn't uh, reflect the, the, the importance and the severity of, of a particular action. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Um, I, I have some thoughts on that, but I want to make sure uh, I'm not talking over my co-host here. Dan, uh, do you, do you have anything you want to add? <laughs> I'm just enjoying the ride. All right. Go for it, Jake. So I think the... Wait, I have a thought. Okay, great. No, I really didn't. I just want to interrupt you. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the analogy to sports is really apt. I, like, I watch a lot of sports as well. And I think... Um, so I'm thinking more about 
football, American football. So this might be really not appealing to a large portion of our audience, but it's it's like when a team is considering going for it on fourth down in a bad position on the field and the commentator will say something like, okay, they're taking an enormous risk. I wouldn't do that. And then, you know, it either pays off or it doesn't. And then you react to that. So I think like what I'm getting at is like, I think as a commentator, it's really great if you like set up the stakes. If, if you have that foresight and you can say, look, like, you know, the, making this play is, is a really big risk because X, Y, and Z. And then you're in a position to talk about it. I think where I kind of get rubbed wrong by commentary sometimes is when a commentator will say that, a strategic decision is objectively wrong. Um, you know, which is, which is a distinction between a play mistake, which is objectively wrong, right? That's that like attacking into a, an elusive creature and then doing nothing to follow up. Right. Like we can all agree that's objective wrong, but like playing. Well, unless you have a fight effect or something, but yeah, yeah, I know. Right. Right. Well, I mean like if, if there was no reason for it, but I think like, as a commentator, even if you like disagree, it's good to leave some room for deference to the player. And 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 I think that's something which I like have always appreciated about your commentary too. Is like, okay, you know that I don't know if I agree with that. You know, that's like taking a gamble that's too big of a risk. But you know, it's, you know they know their deck, you know better than me. Or like, but you know they're the ones playing on stream and I'm not. I think I think like just adding that little bit of like deference to the players really goes a long way to making making it like about the players and not like about like me the commentator who's like all knowledgeable in this situation no i mean i i think that's super important i mean i i try i try to do that i think there are occasionally not extremely often but there are occasionally strategic decisions that are objectively incorrect that being said like i'm not claiming to be good enough that I can immediately recognize all of those. I think there are going to be a couple strategic decisions where it's reasonably obvious that they're incorrect, but by the same token, I, I'm with you. Like, I think that I, I usually, my usual couch that I try to add when these, like I say, okay, they've done X. I don't think X is correct. Here's the reason I don't think X is correct, which is by far the most important part. And then, however, We'll see how that plays out. It's possible that they could have some plan that I don't see right now, right? Especially if it's like they've played, it's a C, even if it's a sealed event, they played their deck for whatever, seven rounds. I have not played their deck at all, and I've maybe at most seen it on stream once, and I have some ideas, but I could entirely be wrong or be missing something. So, like, I, I think it. I think you're right. I try. I am sure, especially earlier on when I started doing Keyforge commentary, that I was guilty of doing what you had described, of saying something like, I just think this is wrong, um, and then not really doing a whole lot about it. And I, I try not to do that. I try to give the reasons, because in my opinion, the reasons are the most important thing. Not just like, yep, I agree with that move, or like, no, I don't agree with that move, but like, why? Because if you're watching this and you're trying to learn something... Um, the fact that like someone did something that Eric agrees with is unlikely to provide you with a lot of useful information. Well said. One more question to wrap up this section and then into the uh, Worlds Collide meta. So let's say you're that player, you're on day two, they're sitting down underneath the cameras. What can a player do that kind of makes a commentator's life easier? So 
is there anything that kind of helps out when you're commentating, like being able to tell what's going on? Uh, is there anything, I mean, we don't want to change anybody's like habits. Cause I mean, you're already in a stressful enough situation day two, you're trying to take down a tournament, but are there just like some little things people can do to kind of make the commentator's job a little bit easier? So I, there, so there, are, if you're playing a game on stream, your number one priority without any exception should be to play your game and not worry a great deal about what we're doing as commentators. We will work around you. There are a couple things you can do to try to make sure that your actions are viewable. Like, that would be the number one thing. So you can be fairly deliberate with your actions. Like, even if you're a fast player, try to slow down a little, especially if you're in a round where you know you're going to have time. Um, if you were doing, like, three different things, but you're doing them all in quick succession, we might not know, especially if we're not close enough to the table to hear what's happening. Um, we might not know on commentary what you're doing. Um, you want to make sure your keys and your amber pool are visible. Usually that's on the commentator because when you set up your pool and your keys at the beginning of the round, if I can't see them before the round starts, I will like leave the booth and we'll go over and I will say, can you move this here so the people can see and that sort of thing. So I guess don't move them once you've set them up already. Like don't shift where your amber pool is. Or I mean, that's, that's not a big deal. Um, just, I mean, in general, if you're playing on stream, some of the lessons that I've learned, I guess, is that you, that everyone's going to make mistakes, right? And making, making fewer mistakes is better than making more mistakes. But I think one of the critical aspects, especially when you're playing on stream and when you have higher pressure, if you're one of the people that, that, um, gets, this is completely normal, that is more stressed by understanding that everything you're doing is going to be immortalized and broadcast to our universe, if you will, is I think you you really have to learn to forgive yourself for making mistakes. That's one of the things I've worked on the most as a player, and it, it's it's true certainly when you're on stream that if you do something, you realize it's wrong. You have to learn to say, okay, I did that. That was a mistake. Here's where we are. Let's move forward from here, and let's not go back and like be constantly beating yourself up about that. And I think that's pretty important. the The one other interesting thing that I've that I've come across as commentator is, is that like, so there's this thing where if you are in a sealed event, right? If you're an Archon event, it doesn't, your deck list doesn't matter. Uh, other people knowing your deck list doesn't matter because your deck list is public information. The moment you sit down at the table, uh, your opponent will see your deck list. So I've tried to be very aware when I'm in a sealed event of uh, when I'm casting a sealed event, like casting day two, for example, I will sometimes ask to see people's, sealed decks, but I'm in this weird kind of position where like I'm on a competitive team, like I think every time I've cast a sealed tournament in person on day two, one of my teammates has been live in the event. So what I will do, because I take I take uh, casting impartiality extremely seriously, um, and I do not want to have any perception um, or as little perception as possible that I am acquiring information through casting and then giving my my teammates my my you know IRL like competitive SAS people, um, team SAS LP. I'm giving them an advantage. So what I will do is I will talk to my teammates before I have any interaction with someone who's going to be on stream in the following round, and then I will say, okay, I can't talk to you anymore about stuff that has anything to do with KeyForge. And then I will go and ask the person if if we're getting deck list. I will go and ask that person for their deck list because I want I, I do not want to have any scenario where it even appears as though I'm providing like my teammates some additional information because I've casted rounds where my teammates have been in it 
and I've had like information about the opponent's deck list, but I never, ever, ever share that with my, because I just don't want to have that situation happen, but it's kind of a unique problem for me because I'm on this competitive team and I'm also casting. So I guess the cliff notes of all that are if you're in a competitive round um, and I'm casting you and, and, and my teammate is playing against you, understand that like under no circumstances, if I'm getting information from you earlier, will I impart that to my teammate? Um, the information that I've received privately as a caster. Like, that will never happen, and I take that extremely seriously. So that's that's a consideration if you have anyone else who has, like, friends or teammates that are in the, in the, in the live, still live in the event. To- well, why don't we uh, give you the floor? I know you mentioned you wanted to shout out some of the people doing great work streaming and commentating. Uh, do you want to take a second to shout out those oh, folks? sure, yeah. So, like, the, the thing that I was just going to say is that there there are a ton of people across across the community that do great work and i'm um i wasn't so much trying to like identify people that are you know like are very good and then inferentially say that i think other people are not as good because that's not all what i meant what i mean is um if you're if you're casting and you're working with a partner um building a rapport with that person is very important um, so there are, there are people who have established, build, building rapport is important for many different reasons. It's important mostly because you get used to when someone, how someone addresses an issue and you learn not to like, to step on them. Like you guys were making jokes about earlier, but you guys are very good about not doing that to yourself, <laughs> right? So you learn not to step on top of them when they're saying something. Cause with very few exceptions, if you're, if you're casting a live round with very few exceptions, if someone's explaining a point of strategy, it's not worth interrupting them to to talk about something mechanical that's happening at the table. Hold on, I know you're getting into this like third level analysis of a very important part <laughs> of the match, but I really want to tell you that they they like they they reaped with Quixo there. Like I really you know like like that's, that's, that's almost <laughs> it was an never obvious worth mistake. It. They should have fought with Quixo. They right. could have drawn the card they, they needed. Exactly. How dare they? Exactly. Forge. Turn right. in your tokens and leave the arena. I mean you can keep your tokens, but everything else not <laughs> Um, but yeah, so like, that's where it's very, it's, it's very important to build a rapport and, and, um, you know, and to do that sort of thing. So in learning to correct other commentators in a tactful manner, like I said, my memory's not great. Sometimes I mix up cards. So the, the person that I've done the most casting with directly is, is Grant Titus, who grants on team SAS. Uh, he's a great guy. Um, and he and I have a pretty good rapport. Uh, we, we've overcasted a couple CKM events. We've got some other stuff, but he's extremely good at allowing me to go off on whatever tangent I'm on and then, you know, then continuing with the match or finding a way when I've done an entire line of analysis on the basis that someone's played Poison Wave and they've they've actually played Ammonia Clouds and I still can't remember the difference. And then he's like, well, all that would be true, except that the premise is incorrect. So so we'll just continue on with that. Uh, But it's it's really important. So, like, I've I've had a great – I've had great fun working with Grant. Um, I actually did – Several. I did rounds of both Justin and Nathan from TTR, and those guys are naturals. Like I don't, I don't think they have a lot of broadcasting experience outside of their stream, but they're really good. Um, I, I, I've done other rounds with other people that have also been very good. Uh, forgetting everyone's name because again, memory. So apologies. And there are other teams that are established out there that are also very good. Like you guys are very good, and there are all sorts of other people in the universe that do great work. I've just meant least mostly spoke speaking from personal experience. Um, so that's you know. It's the sort of thing that um, that you just kind of having reps with someone is is good and and just kind of being able to respect people's space like you are with me in this very long rambling answer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I totally agree. And we run into that all the time. People are asking us to recommend podcasts or whatever. And, it, you know, shouting out one, it doesn't mean there aren't just so many people doing great work in this space. So I think we would be neglecting our duty to our core audience if we bring you on this show and don't get into a little bit about actual Keyforge strategy. So I like commentary. I like streaming. I love talking about Keyforge. I love talking about Keyforge with people who are passionate about Keyforge. So I'm not. I'm not kidding. Like, you tell me whatever you want to talk about. I'm here. All right, let's get into it. So we want to talk about the Worlds Collide meta and, and our predictions for what that's going to do to the game and look like going forward. So big topic. Be, people can really hate us later for our terrible takes because that's what meta. That's what predictions are good for is to be proved wrong later. So. Get your hot take recorders ready and ready to throw this back <laughs> at us in like a month or two here. Uh, so let's let's start big and then maybe drill down a little bit. But and this is for you know everybody discussing question. But it's like where do we think that Worlds Glide stacks up at right now at this point in time to Age of Ascension and Call of the Archons specifically in the Archon format? I think it's day one competitive. I mean, I don't. I, I definitely don't think any of the other sets. Um, are like are bad. Well, I mean, <laughs> you could say it. I'm well known to not like AOA, right? I'm well known to not like AOA. Yeah, AOA is just not as efficient as Coda was. It did no. something different than Coda, but not something that was better than Coda. So, unfortunately, like there are definitely that one percent of like AOA decks that are still good and can be super competitive, but the vast majority of AOA decks are just a little grindy. To compete against a very efficient Coda universe. The interesting thing about AOA is that, so I I think that most of the good, most of the good AOA decks that I'm aware of, or the builds that I that I can be potentially aware of, if they're not necessarily combo decks, they're still premised off of a a single digit one hand count on one hand number of cards. Right, so MGKA decks, Martian Generosity Key Abduction decks, um, Drum or Not, Ganger Chieftain decks, Grump Bucky decks. Um, I'm trying to think of any other like Proclamation. Specific, yeah, proc proc decks. So these are all AOA decks that are good or potentially competitive because of a handful of cards. So if, for example, if I say made, oh I don't know, three or four of those cards disappear. <laughs> like into the zone of purge, right? <laughs> then, then those decks get significantly less competitive. Um, it's not like in my experience, most AOA decks are not good because they have high average card quality. So what happens is if when you introduce the phenomenon known as worlds collide dis into when you like inject, I kind of imagine it as like a virus, right? Like when you inject <laughs> it into the meta. Like, it does crazy things and blows up a lot of, potentially blows up a lot of strategies. Yeah. Before I go we're too far down that rabbit referring hole. to yeah. my pick, which is Infernus. Um, I mean, that's still kind of reactionary. It still has to be in the discard for Infernus, but then you also have Bornit and Bornit's Touch. I think Touch is a little bit better. It comes with an Amber Pip. It's an action card in Dis that uh, you get to look at the top five cards of either your deck or your opponent's deck. Probably recommend your opponent's deck. Um, and purge one of those cards and then put the other four cards back in their deck and reshuffle. 
So yeah, you can essentially find, so if we're doing the Jenka combo, then you can either find, you have a chance of hitting either Martian Generosity or Key Abduction and just purging it. So it's no longer a factor in that deck. So now you're forcing that deck to play a fair game, which that deck may be able to do because the best Jenka decks, my best Jenka deck plays a fair game beautifully. My best two actually play a pretty good fair game. And I've had to kind of adjust the way I play those to be more successful, to play for more of a fair game and to hit the Jenka as a kind of a bonus Yahtzee kind of moment. Um, But yeah, a lot of those decks, if they rely on that combo, if that's like what they need to win and you pull off, pull out a piece or both pieces, all of a sudden that deck is significantly worse. I'm curious what y'all's thoughts are on this. So I I was kind of playing with this idea that part of the, so there are AOA rush decks that are, pretty good at making a lot of ember really fast the problem is because aoa decks typically don't have the amber control especially like steel to compete with coda versions of those rush decks they just lose the race every time because they're just getting outpaced due to steel so now world's glide comes into the meta and there are like specific anti-steel cards i think that you know, even beyond the cards that say you can't steal, Saurians are very well positioned to combat that type of strategy. Um, so I was just wondering, I don't know if maybe like those steel-based rush decks, if they become a declining presence in the meta, maybe some decks that are just purely based on generating tons of amber, which which some worlds Club, or sorry, some Age of Assumption decks can do, could find themselves to be more viable in the meta. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had I had an operating theory when we were only about a third of the way into what we'll call target spoiler season, if you will. <laughs> the target pre-release. That's right, the target pre-release. Um, so what? So when we only knew about a third of the cards, um, and before that, so that point and backwards, I had an operating theory, um, and that my operating theory was that it was hypothetically possible that the presence of World Collide in vaults could make inferentially AOA better because. Worlds Collide seems to care a lot about board and has a lot of board-based, especially in things like Star Alliance and Saurian, has a lot of board-based Amber Control. Like, there's not a lot of non-board, specifically creature, not just any board, creature-based Amber Control. In There's a lot of that in, in Worlds Collide. And there are there is a universe where, because AOA, in most instances at the top tier... Um, does board, handles the board better than any other set, like, because it's so board-centric, that in theory, um, you could have a situation where an elite board AOA, like Grump Buggy, something like that deck, could theoretically become more competitive because Worlds Collide is going to kind of count, like, it's a rock-paper-scissors theory, right? Like so, like. Right, so you have like you have Coda as the rock, you have AOA as the scissors, and generally, generally, Coda has dominated AOA at the high levels. But then you you introduce Paper, um, which answers Coda, which maybe makes them maybe makes Coda played less often, and then that opens up the door for, in theory, um, the scissors of AOA to get better. Now I don't know that that's going to work in practice because I think the Saurian build has gotten a lot better than I had known at the time in terms of, like, handling board and that sort of stuff. But that is a possibility for something that could happen. Yeah. No, that was that was my hope, too. I was 
really hoping, it's, I think I've said it on here, if I haven't, I've screamed it in the Discord a lot of times where I was really hoping that that kind of scenario would happen because that would make for a really interesting meta where it's not even about just deck choice, but it's like, what decks do you think will be there? So what's going to be the right meta choice for what set you should bring? And yeah, hopefully it, it might play out. I don't know. So, I mean, the stack up part of it, I mean, I think we put Coda at top. I mean, I think Coda stays on top till it's proven otherwise because it's just so efficient. I think you have Worlds Collide right there with it. I'm not sure if it's on, like, it's it's still too early to really say, but I think it has the tools to really punish a lot of what made Coda really good. Um, the steel prevention is huge, like the Odiacs and the Gargantodons and... Um, I don't know, other stuff that just kind of limits that ability. I feel like those decks are going to rise. You're going to find a good Saurian lineup where you can drop an Odiac and then tribute it a couple of times, then give it to your opponent, and then six separate, or just any number of a million things that you can do now just to burst Amber and just kind of protect that Amber burst in your pool or use it right away with a different, I mean, Triumph, Imperial Forge. Like, I'm just naming off a bunch of cards so everybody's going to have to get on their compendiums and figure them out um so yeah right now i think i mean worlds collide like i think we can say like is trending towards being a little bit better than aoa at this point like there's just more high impact cards in worlds collide so far than it seems that aoa had yeah i all i was gonna add is i think that one issue that aoa had has and will continue to have moving forward is unless we see all of a sudden AOA decks are like performing well at the high level, which I don't expect. Like there were just lower sales of that set because of like initially the reaction was that these decks aren't viable and that seemed to bear out in, in the competitive scene. And I think you're getting a different reaction now. So hopefully Worlds Collide will be a bigger commercial success. And I think that just the number of decks out there, that's going to have some bearing on the types of decks we see showing up in tournaments. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's definitely true. And I mean, they did, they did, they did stuff with, with worlds collide. Like they put chase cards in there. I mean, they're always chase cards, but they put anomalies in there. So if you want to like, like I'm, I'm not usually the guy that buys like a case of products. Um, but, but if you want it, like if you're that kind of person, you want to just, you want to go out there and just open a bunch of stuff because, you know, there's a chance that you could get the the mythic rare, if you will, of, of Keyforge and find um, and find some anomalies in there. That's that's definitely true. But I, I, in general, I think I think Worlds Collide is I think it's one A and one B with Coda. I, I if you want hot takes, I don't know how hot of a take this is, but I definitely think a Worlds Collide deck will win an open solo Archon event before an AOA deck will. And I think I think I'd probably be comfortable saying like at least three of them will win an open AOA. So sorry, an open Archon solo event for an AOA deck. Like it's entirely possible, and it would be on one level pretty sad just for the for the for the game. But it's entirely possible that an AOA deck will never win an open Archon, um, like solo Archon event ever. Like, that's entirely possible. Yeah, I am inclined to agree with that take. And I, I think it actually I think it actually brings up an interesting point, though. So there has been some, uh, I guess, people who theorized, myself included, that part of the reason that AOA never really took hold in the community was because there was such a significant delay between when the set was released 
and when it was playable on the Crucible Online, where like the vast majority of Keyforge testing takes place. Um, and now with Worlds Collide, the development team at TCO has put it out playable on the same day the set is officially released. Do you think that has? Do you think that theory bears any weight at all? Well, I guess, I guess we'll find out, right? But I mean, I, I think I think absolutely. The, to me, the biggest impact it has is it makes it makes someone who's going to an Archon Vault much more comfortable with bringing a Worlds Collide deck. I mean, some people are going to bring Worlds Collide anyway because it's new and shiny and does cool things, right? Yeah, it's fun. Like, but right, it's fun, right? Like, I that's the fundamental thing. Like, I just have a lot more fun playing Worlds Collide than I do AOA. Maybe that's because I've been in the grind fest of AOA for a while and it's just new. But I think it is fundamentally cooler. Like, it has it has, it has mechanics that I like better. But I, I think that being on TCO will make a big difference in the context of people being able to identify what a good Worlds Collide deck is. Because you play a lot of reps with, with decks, you could play test different decks much easier. And for a lot of people, I mean, even very good people, like Nathan, like Nathan on my team, who who runs decks of Keyforge, who has won two Vault Tours, and is maybe, in my opinion, the best player in the world. I'm not sure. You can make, make a good argument for like 10 people. But, um, but he does not have a local Right, he lives in an area of Oregon where, like, on rare occasions, they'll get like four people to play in a game on rare occasions. So he cannot play in person. So if if, if there wasn't like Worlds Collide available on TCO, like he would have an enormously difficult time playing and playtesting Worlds Collide decks. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are in somewhat of a similar situation, even not in the U.S. Right, people overseas who don't have a local and they like this is the only way they can play so it's incredibly important obviously we'll see if the official digital client pops up anytime soon but definitely knock on wood yeah knock on knock on the wood yes exactly but you know tco's done a a good job of having like that's been a very very positive thing that they were able to open source it get help and i'm glad they went in that direction like i was concerned that it might not go in that direction but i'm glad i'm glad it went in that direction i'm glad they um, improve the product in that way. No, and I think it's going to help with sales too. I think, I know for me, myself with AOA, when it first came out and it wasn't immediately playable, I wasn't as apt to go buy more decks because I didn't really get a chance to really test the decks I have. I've got dad life. I've got plenty of local events near me, but I just don't have the time to go out and play in a bunch of local events. So um, I spent a fair amount of time on Tabletop Simulator and that is a fine tool. And if you have the right opponent that you play with regularly, you can get games pretty quickly on there. But um, if you're playing with just, you know, it it takes a little bit to get used to and just to, it takes a little bit more time to play a game on there. So you just weren't able to rep quite as many reps as you would normally be able to say on a TCO client. So I think it's going to help big time with yeah the testing process and just finding out what's good. And even just playing randos on TCO, you can kind of see some different decks and go like, oh, well, that's cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's also interesting, right? So if you, the thing, the, the reason I just, I play all the time in the competitive TCO queue and like, I find it, I find it useful a lot of the time, even if, and I don't like, you know, I don't, it's very difficult to make judgments about player quality from like one game, right? But even if I'm, even if I'm playing a game versus someone who it does it might be distracted or tired or not paying attention or whatever reason they appear to be making mistakes it's still a useful metric for me because if i'm playing it if i'm playing a deck that i think should be competitive 
and this person who doesn't appear to be paying attention to the game is thrashing my deck. Like, that's a pretty good, like, red flag for, like, hey, maybe this deck is not competitive in this sort of matchup, right? If someone who's if someone who's doing this is, you know, like, not even making, like, because I've played Tired on TCO before and made all sorts of silly mistakes. So it's not a judgment about the people, but you can get kind of some, like, lower-end judgments in terms of, like, you know, if my, if my deck's not capable of winning this particular matchup when these things are happening, then, you know, it may not be that good, right? Yeah. Definitely agree with that. Um, what do you guys think about jumping into some, like, more drilling down to some of the specific cards that we think are going to really, you know, be the key cards of this emergent meta? Any Anyone willing to plant their flag here behind some of the most important cards? Um, so, I mean, for Dis, I think you're going to see some really good Dis Purge lineup decks with Infernus, Bornet's Touch, Hysteria, Not Finished With You, Exhume, just ways to keep bouncing that Infernus. Um, some decks going to have the Holy Trinity and have a um, no-name in there as well. So they have this huge no-name and just another way to purge cards. So no-name is a disc creature. It's one power. No-name gets plus one power for each purged card, which I've played with some of my decks. I've had like nine or ten cards purged out of each player's pile. So I mean, that's a really big no-name when he lands. And he's a play, fight, reap, purge a card in a discard pile. Um, so I think you're going to see that. For Saurians, I think the Six Semper Tyrannosaurus, um, that's the destroy the most powerful, or move the amber from the most powerful creature into your amber pool and then destroy that creature. Um, that thing's going to do some work. Like That's just such a big swing if somebody can tribute a couple times. Or Crassiosaurus, which captures 10 amber between the two players, and then you just Six Semper it back to yourself. I think you just said it, but like in my opinion, the big card there is tribute, which in so many dis or sorry, so many Saurian lineups is like there's so many ways to either use Amber Captured for yourself or at least make sure it goes back to the common supply rather than your opponent. That tribute is frequently just uh, burn the stockpile that always hits and gives you an Amber. Tribute is very very good. Um, it, so it's kind of interesting, right? I, I think that there are some cards that are going to be good in both Sealed and um, and Archon events, but I think that there are a couple of cards that I would earmark um, as very good for Sealed specifically and perhaps not as good in open format. The number one, of best example of that for me, is Regrettable Meteor. To my mind, Regrettable Meteor is possibly the best board clear in a Sealed event. Like when I went to Indy last weekend, when I went to Indy. I'm in Indy. When I traveled down the street last weekend to the ball <laughs> tour, um, I, uh, I wanted to open. Like, the, in my mind, one potential really, really good build in Sealed is, uh, for a Saurian house, is something that does not have a lot of creatures, has some good effects, like has tributes, whatever, but also has a couple of regrettable meteors. And that's kind of like a, like a, that was my guess at like a big brain anti-meta play. Where you, where you assume a lot of people are going to want to be playing Saurian. And so the Meteor is the most effective way to kill Saurian creatures, I think, in set en masse. Like, Axiom doesn't do it. I mean, you could have some weird Ragnarok deck in Brovnar. But there's really... Uh, hysteria is also a thing that could matter. But, um, but like, Regrettable Meteor, in my mind, is one of those things that goes up significantly in value in a sealed environment versus an Archon environment. Um, I think I think a lot of people in these sealed events will have to make a decision 
about how much they want to play Shadows for Hawk. And that's really weird to me. <laughs> but I think that, like, because Hawk is far and away the best artifact removal... I mean, you can make an argument with Poltergeist. Poltergeist is an uncommon, but setting that aside, outside of the Poltergeist argument, Hawk is generally the best artifact removal, certainly a common in set. There's that, like, Tachyon Pulse in Star Alliance. But Hawk is so powerful, and it's excellent insurance in um, in a sealed format. If you're going up against, um, if you're going up against like some deck that happens to pull a Quixel Stone or some other, there are a handful of artifacts. The Fangtooth Cavern could be real bad if you're not if you're not tooled up uh, to to play against that deck. Um, so I think I think that that's going to be a major consideration where people are going to be carrying Shadows Houses or choosing Shadows Houses. Um, because because they have some form of artifact control, which is a weird thing to give to shadows. <laughs> but my my instinct is that they want to balance the balance it because they perceived as adding so much shadows hate in Sorian that they wanted to be like, well, what can we give shadows? I know, let's give them something that unconditionally blows up an artifact, gets them two amber, and we'll print it in common. <laughs> so like, I mean, that's a thing. It was impactful in the final of Indie, that's for sure. Well, so, yeah, so it was interesting. So, like, Nathan Nathan got, and this, this was one of the other things I forgot to say earlier, is one of the lessons that I've learned from casting is there's some, there are some games where no matter how good you play, no matter how many correct decisions you make, you will not win. Like, the fates are aligned against you. Because game two with Indy in the final, um, uh, his opponent has a Quixelstone deck, which totally shuts down Nathan's deck. He plays it turn one, and Nathan's like, oh, I have the exact answer to Quixelstone, which is Technivore Pulpate, that rare creature in, um, I think it's rare, uh, in Star Alliance, where it says play after an opponent, or after a player chooses a house, you have to blow up all the artifacts in that house, right? So he just, he had that in his hand, he played it. If he had a Hawk in that deck, it would it would, it would be unbeatable. But that's, what like, it, that's what it was. I was confused. Yeah, that, that yeah, was, but it was, that was a No, but it was Pulpate, but I mean, like, he had it in hand, right? right? So, like, so there are some games where you're just never going to win, and you need to accept that, and that's not fair, but that's just how it works. But, yeah, like, but if you just think about how much better Nathan's deck would have been, how resilient it would have been if it had Hawk, right? Because that's just crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that's really interesting about some of the cards to look for, specifically in Sealed. Um, I guess another, like, a, another couple of cards I'll... I'll mentioned i really think that logos is positioned to be a complete powerhouse in this set uh i, I kind of see it in my own personal uh ranking as sort of a 1a 1b with saurian which i think a lot, that might seem high to some people but um i mean they just have some really incredible tools so like you know they still have efficiency but now they have some really crazy amber control too in edai whatever the numbers are uh you know the card that's essentially just sorry now i'm blanking on it uh lab work it's a lab work on a stick it's a lab work with a body that also increases key costs i mean what's yeah. not to like it's everything you want it to be and then some code monkey is insane titan guardian i think is a really really strong card at common as well they, they just put taunt in logos yeah they put right taunt in logos <laughs> logos has everything yeah, Titan Guardian, 5-1 armor, 1 armor, taunt, destroyed. If Titan Guardian is not on a flank, draw 2 cards. I mean, it is just all upside on that thing. It's the one taunt creature that you celebrate its demise. I think Logos is... Um, Nathan actually convinced me of this. Um, teammate Nathan 
convinced me of this over the weekend that like I was originally on like Logos might be like second best house, but I got I got the hard sell by Nathan over the weekend and he sold me on like Logos being the best house um, on average in Worlds Collide and and, and Elite Logos is, is also very like Elite Logos is up there too, right? Um, I, I just think it's it's so good like I, I, when I'm evaluating houses on average I tend to look at just commons. I mean you could consider other things but the commons are the the cards that are going to appear most on average and i'm just scrolling through the logos commons and there is i don't know like one that i think is not that great but it got better like the one logos common that i think is not that great is cutthroat research but all the key cost increase like it got way better so it's like you know i like Bibliophile dies a lot, so it's probably not amazing. Babbling Bibliophile is a one-power creature. It says Reap throughout two cards. It's a I like that creature. card, though. It's amazing, it'll... but it dies to everything. Yeah, but your opponent like, has to answer everything. it. Your opponent yeah. has right. to answer it. No, but that's that's correct. And I mean, other than those two cards, I think every... And you can make an argument about Quant. Like, if your deck doesn't Quant is a three-power creature. It says Reap. You may play one non-Logos action card this turn. So if you don't happen to have a lot of good non-Logos actions, that card is bad in a certain decks. But other than that, I think all the Logos commons are above average, which is nuts. Like, it is... It's nuts. And, I mean, yeah, there are just some... I, so I did an experiment when I, was, when I was preparing for this cast, and I said, can I build a Vault Tour winning Archon deck in Worlds Collide, one that could win a Vault Tour, just by using commons from three houses? And I did, like, a Logos Starline Saurian, and, like, I think the answer was Yes. I think I think you can win a vault with commons out of World Collide, and you don't have to have like six of anything. I said four max. Give us so, some more of the key cards you put in there. That's a really interesting experiment. Sure. So right here. So here's the deck I built, and I think you could build different versions of this deck. And certainly, if you're allowed to add uncommons into my experiment, I think you can do a lot of different things. But the deck that I did, the deck that I built, um, just obviously this is not how Keyforge works in any way, what whatsoever. But just we're, not, we're not endorsing. Deck right. I'm not endorsing deck building. <laughs> Don't flame us, right? I think I think I think draft would be interesting. But before I go down that thing and lose all my credibility in the community forever, I will just tell you about this this thought experiment um, that I did. Okay, so I said Logos uh, Starline Saurian. So for Logos, I said uh, we'll take four four eighties eddies. How do you pronounce that? You, I don't know. I go Ed I. I like Ed I like Eddie. <laughs> I think they're like six pronunciations or whatever. I don't know. But so you four of those guys. Um, I said throw in two daughters, three Igors. Igor is like one of my favorite cards of all time. Love that card. Um, which is why when they printed Philosophosaurus, which is like as oh long as you goodness. get a chance so to good. reap, is a strictly better Igor and it's nuts. So good. Um, if you get to reap. And then three vapors. Like I really like Tatao Vapors. Oh, because yeah. <laughs> that is draw two cards, archive a card. It's like, it would be still halfway decent if it said, draw two cards, archive one of those cards, and put the other in your hand. But it doesn't. It says, archive any card. I mean, it doesn't say any, but that's what it means. So, like, you can draw two and archive excess stuff in your hand, which is just nuts. And then I said, so in Star Alliance, I said, I'll take two red alerts. In my mind, red alert is a meta-altering card especially if it's the right deck, because Red Alert is conceivably and frequently a one-sided partial or total board clear with no chains that you can play it that doesn't have Alpha or Omega. You can play it anytime you want. It just does it does insanely crazy things. And even worst case scenario frequently, as long as you have one fewer creature, 
it strips all the wards off of your opponent's cards, right? So it's super, super good. Uh, then I said I'll throw in three Commander Chans, which is the guy that fight, reap, use another friendly creature. It's a four-power creature, so it's pretty resilient. Those guys are nuts. Insane, um, yeah. Yeah. They threw in a few medics. Medic Ingram, play fight reap. You he, you may heal three damage from a creature and ward it. That is, in my playtesting experience, that card is bonkers because you like just being able to ward stuff on reap is real, real good. Um, and especially since Star Alliance is frequently a main house, you can just keep going back and warring stuff. And then I said you can also give me uh, some couple frames. First officer frame, play fight reap, friendly creature captures one, and then some sensor chief Garcia's. Um, which play fight reap keys cost plus two. I remember when that <laughs> card was spoiled, and I said, "I said okay, I see what they're doing. <laughs> they're they're doing this, which is which is an excellent idea." Um, and then you know, Sorian, I just said I'll take uh, a couple Ludos. In my opinion, uh, Ludo is one of the best cards in Sorian because it lets you do whatever you want to do in Sorian until your opponent kills it. Perfectorous Ludo is a five-power dino that says each other friendly creature gains destroyed. Move each amber on this creature to the common supply. So if your opponent has a board wipe that kills all of your creatures, or if they just want to individually pick off your creatures in Saurian or anywhere else, which is why Frame Frame works really well in this deck I'm creating, um, they have to kill Ludo first. If they don't kill Ludo first, they get no benefit from killing all these creatures that have amber on it, or at least they don't get the amber. Um couple tributes, a couple legionaries, a couple redders. Redders, the play, the key cost increase thing. Because I think that, that's been very good in my playtesting. And then throw in a couple imperial scutums for, for amber control protection. Like, I, I love think that, that card. Yeah, that deck is, I think that, that deck is very simple and straightforward, but I think that deck, like, it's, it's just fast. Oh, I agree. Those cards are just insane. And I think it also brings up kind of back to the meta point is they've kind of gone back to what they originally had in Coda, where a lot of the best, most impactful cards are actually in the common slot, where it felt like that was another problem with Age of Ascension, where a lot of the best and most impactful cards were rares. So, you know, on average, just weaker decks. But yeah, no, I, that's really interesting. Thanks for uh, sharing that. Really quick, uh, I want to mention Word of Returning and, and Guilty Hearts. <laughs> so if you're worried about facing a bunch of dinos in the coming days, go through your Coda collection, see if you have any Word of Returning and or Guilty Heart decks. Those decks will be kind of nice. Whistling um, Darts too. Whistling Darts has become a thing to knock off all the wards, which is really nice. Uh, the Horsemen of Pestilence. <laughs> is to uh, gain some value now all it's of a, a throwback sudden. yeah so it's a throw some throwback some stuff that i see that could potentially be good going against worlds clyde if ward really becomes a strong thing then uh yeah there's some different cards that just ping across the board poison wave which is i guess people consider a good card i've never enjoyed it so much but that has some new life to hit just a bunch of things a lot of ping effects are just going to become much better going forward if Ward becomes a big thing, which it kind of seems to be with uh, Star Alliance and Sarians kind of rising to the top in both of those houses, having plenty plenty of uh, protection, plenty of Ward effects to really make their battle lines very sticky. If you're looking for the lottery ticket pull, someone someday, it's probably unlikely, but if someone ever opens a Legacy Restring Guntus with Compost, 
with Comps Compsos, the guy that the guy that turns your play reaps play abilities mm -hmm. into reap. So you play Guntus, you reap once. Now they can't call two houses for the remainder of the game, no matter what you do. You reap a second time, the game's literally over. Yeah, or favor of Rexit. Or yeah, or or jeez, <laughs> yeah. Or, I don't, so I don't. I I got to get the rules lawyers in here, I guess, because I don't yeah. really I don't really know how favor of Rex works. If you don't, if like, if it, if the if the play effect is referential to a creature that say you don't control, right? Someone someone right. plays Guntus and you favor Rex Guntus. Like, at what point does the Guntus effect go away? Is it when their Guntus dies? Is it? It's just so weird. I don't know. There's yeah, a lot. No, that one's, that one's super weird. But let's leave effect. it for another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that bombshell. Let's, yeah, let's let's call it there. Um, Eric, thanks so much for coming on this show. Uh, if you have anything to plug or you want to give any shout outs, you know, let the people know where they can find you on social media. Now is Sure, your time. sure. So I'm my screen name pretty much anywhere is Justice Blinded, no spaces, J-U-S-T-I-C-E-B-L-I-N-D-E-D. -E -E um, I'll, I'll plug my, um, my cast slot that I normally do whenever there's not a vault, although we're recording stuff, so we'll, um, so it'll be up more often. I, I cast on uh, Sunday evenings. Um, I usually cast with Grant. We cast on Archon's Corner um, on their uh, on their Twitch stream, and we're going to be putting them up on YouTube. Um, and I'll throw a shout out to our uh, our team SAS sponsor, Luxury Playstyles. Uh, they they handle our tokens, and you know the thing that I think is coolest about them, their tokens are amazing. But the thing that I cool think is cool about Luxury Playstyles is they were the first company that was willing to step into the KeyForge market and sponsor it a team. And I, and I hope that more companies do that. They sponsor different teams, different people. Um, because to me, that's a metric of how the game is growing. And I think that that's super important. So different podcasts. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, no, no. Listen, you guys, listen, you guys should totally. Yeah. No, the people out there, please sponsor these guys. They do great work. <laughs> Keyforge community is small enough. We need to all grow together. I'm, I'm with you. Like I I'm, I'm all about, I'm all about, and that's 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 exactly right. I mean, I think my closing thoughts would be that, like, obviously, I have my irons in a couple of different fires. Like, I do Team SAS. I'm on Arkans Corner. I randomly appear on other people's uh, cast that they're running of T2 and vaults. Like, I just, I, but I, I really, really enjoy this game. I want to see this game grow. This community is by far the best of any um, of any game that I've played, and not that I've played a lot of games competitively, but I, I really like this community, I really like the people that are in the community, I want to grow the community, share whatever whatever knowledge I might have, and learn from the, the knowledge of other people, and you guys are definitely some of those people that I've learned from, so I want to oh. thank you for what you've done, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, no, I'm all about that, I'm not, no, no amount of I'm, I'm not about any amount of exclusivity in terms of the community, like I'm all about growing the community, and um, I think that's a super important thing, and I'm 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 encouraged by where we're going and where we're at. Indeed. All right, you find me. I'm Dan is someone D A N I S S O M E one on Twitter, Twitch, on the Discord. Discord's where you can find me hanging out when I'm supposed to be doing work and trying not to do work and throwing in random thoughts there. So come join the Discord. It's been amazing. People keep trickling in, and it just keeps growing. Also, if you're hearing this, um, you missed out on season two, or season three, rather, of the Sealed Adaptive League, but that has started, so good luck, Archon Sealed Worlds Collide Adaptive. Let's go. Uh, my name's Jake. You can find me on Twitter at Jake Free. That's just J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D. I want to extend my gratitude one more time to our guest. Eric, has been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> Thanks.
look forward to seeing you at the next uh, big event I can make it to. Absolutely. Archons, beware the all-knowing voice. Be considerate of viewing, lest you face his wrath of judgment. Be sure to be clear in your actions and intentions, and be cognizant of where Amber is going at all times in this exalted era of Keyforge. And as always, forge those keys. Alright, is that is that you, Dan, doing the voice? That is really my voice. <laughs> I wondered, I always wondered if you had, like, some voice, and I've listened to the cast, now I know. I listened to some You're voice not actors. the first. You will not be the last. <laughs> this is my voice. Really close to the microphone, talking out of the back of my throat. It hurts immeasurably. <laughs> I throw a little bit of reverb on there so you can be forgiven. Drinking water now. <laughs>